This is an ABC podcast. Hi, you're on RN. Welcome to Counterpoint. For many of us, the COVID-19 pandemic is the worst health event we've experienced. But parents and grandparents experienced much worse. Wars, a depression, and major health scares. But we talk about it more using technology, and we expect our leaders to talk about it more, and we talk about it in a very different way. Western civilization has given the world tremendous advantages. No doubt there've been mistakes. Not everything is good. But why do so many ignore the good and focus on the bad? As if civilization is something to be hated. Speaking of hate, emotions are important. And if we learn to use them, we can get ahead of the game. Having emotions doesn't mean you've lost control. But first, to rising authoritarianism in India. Bad things are happening, and sadly, few seem to care. India is the world's largest democracy in terms of population. So in a democratic sense, it's incredibly important. Incredibly important. But some really weird things are going on there. There's a rise of authoritarianism. And when I read the requirements for some people to be or not be citizens, I think, oh, gee, this is hard. So if I was living in a place where there was little education and on the fringes, if you like, of Indian society, I'd find it even harder. This is a really important issue. And joining me now to discuss it is Zubin Marden. He's a political observer, atheist, and he calls himself oilfield trash. But that's another story. Zubin Marden, thanks for joining us on Counterpoint. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, it is the world's biggest democracy, so it is a problem, isn't it? Well, yeah, we are 1.3 billion of us and... You are reminded of that in times like these when the country is on lockdown and you have millions of daily wage laborers moving from the cities back to their hometowns and it's absolute chaos. Yeah. Well, you've been reading a book, How Democracies Die, by Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt. But probably having read the book, you think pretty much all of those symptoms are there to see in India. You don't need to read the book can you tell us what's happening there? Well, absolutely. You're absolutely right. If you read the book, every symptom of a dying democracy is currently being manifested here. Just to give your listeners an idea, the incumbent government is formed by the Bharatiya Janata Party, the BJP. The BJP is an extremely far-right party, which comes under the umbrella of the Sangh Parivar or the Sangh family, which is a large Hindutva outfit. And just to give you a perspective of who these people are, if you remember in 1999, the Australian missionary Graham Staines was murdered by this Hindutva outfit called Bajrang Dal. Well, the Bajrang Dal is the militant arm of the Sangh Parivar, and they are basically the same family from where the BJP rose from. Mm -hmm. So these are the people who burned Graham Stames and his two sons, aged 10 and 6, alive in a car in 1999, just because he was a Christian missionary and they accused him of converting Hindus. Yep. So this is the kind of party that we have in power right now. And as far as India is concerned, absolutely the far-right fringe has now become mainstream. And how does that, for example, in terms of the Citizenship Act, what's happening there? Well, ever since they announced the CAA, there have been protests all across the country. And if you read the terminology of the CAA and the National Citizens Register, a lot of critics are afraid that when these two acts are used in tandem, they will kind of disenfranchise Muslims. That is the fear. How true it is and what are the details there is a lot of debate on that, whether it 
is indeed designed like that, but BJP's track record doesn't inspire a lot of trust in them. So there have been protests all across the nation, right up till the point where we had a nationwide lockdown. And imagine the first day that the nation was locked down, the first thing that the government does is go to these protest sites like Shaheen Bagh, and they had workers whitewash the graffiti and the protest art that was on the walls. So imagine the priority of this country where 1.3 billion people are faced with a pandemic and their first task is to whitewash protest graffiti. Mm. So these people are extremely insecure like most authoritarians are. And the anti-Muslim dog whistle has been their primary election agenda in every election. You have the Prime Minister Modi use words like Shamshan and Kabrastan you know, a typical dog whistles about Muslims having too many kids and Muslims building their graveyards all over the country, things like that, you know. This is the politics of dog whistle. And unfortunately, now all Indians are going to suffer from it because based on identity politics, we have elected people like Yogi Adityanath and Sadhvi Pragya to power. These are far-right militant Hindutva almost terrorists, if you will. Sadhvi Pragya was indicted in the Malegaon blasts, which was a terrorist attack done by her in a Muslim neighborhood. And there are cases going on against her and she was elected to parliament. So now we have literal terrorists in parliament. So that's how bad it is. Mm. And I'm pretty sure with this pandemic, you know, most of the times authoritarians just need an event like this to kind of grab more power, just like we are seeing in Hungary. So I think we are going to see the same thing happen over here as time goes by and things get worse. You're on RN. This is Counterpoint. I'm talking with Zubin Marden. He's a political observer and atheist, describes himself as oil-filled trash, and he's going to tell us what's going on in India, and it is not good. I was reading in the article you wrote some criteria for the National Register of Citizens under which all the 1.3 billion Indians will be required to prove that they are citizens. Now, bear with me here because this is a bit complicated. You either have to be born on or after the 26th of January 1950 and before July 87. That seems simple enough. On or after 1950 and before 87. Born on or after 87, but before the commencement of the Citizenship Act in 2003. And on it goes. This seem to be arbitrary dates picked out of I don't know where to say if you're born here and you had one parent in India, you're a citizen, and if you're born at other times, you're not. How can that work? Well, I'm just assuming here they're trying to single out the Bangladeshi Muslim refugees that came here and they claim are continuing to come here across our eastern border, which isn't really very true. Most of them came in 1971 after East Pakistan broke out and we had the war. But the way this has been framed now, it's like all 1.3 billion citizens will have to prove that their forefathers or at least their immediate parents were living in this country before a certain date. So you can have a PAN card, which is our equivalent, loosely equivalent of the social security number. You can have a passport, but that still doesn't prove that you're a citizen. You will have to show that your parents lived at a bona fide address somewhere in India before a particular date, or you lived before a particular date if you're old enough to prove that. Mm. So it is quite ridiculous. We are the first country in the world where we are telling the world that, look, a passport is not a valid proof of citizenship. What is our standing in the world now? If you take an Indian passport and the Indian government is telling you that, well, this is not enough to prove your citizenship. So imagine that. It's very difficult, I think, for Australians to imagine that. Now, there's been some violence associated with these claims, with police being caught on television destroying vehicles of Muslims and entering houses to rob and bash up a Muslim residence, a student being killed returning from prayers at the mosque, a cleric stripped and humiliated, just terrible things happening. And seemingly the authorities not doing anything about it. In fact, the authorities perpetrating these bad things. 
Well, absolutely. If you remember, the Prime Minister Narendra Modi was the Chief Minister of Gujarat when the 2002 anti-Muslim pogrom took place. And Hindutva apologists still claim that it is a riot and not a pogrom. But even at that time, the Hindutva mobs carried electoral roles to pinpoint Muslim citizens in residential areas. And they were targeting and killing Muslims. So it was absolutely state-sponsored pogrom. And now he is the prime minister with his trusty Lieutenant Amit Shah, who is the home minister. So these are the people who were in power in Gujarat when the 2002 pogrom took place. So you just have to connect the dots. Mm. Now, one of the problems for him, though, is that, yes, he's got a very strong Hindu base and quite conservative, as you say, right-wing, although I balk a bit at that because that doesn't necessarily mean you have to be racist and exclusionary, but in any event, that's what these people apparently are. So that's one problem he has. They want to, if you like, cleanse India to get their sort there and get rid of others, appalling as that seems. But he's got a faltering economy and quite a bit of sort of slowdown going on. So they can't really afford, if they want India to go ahead and to prosper, one would think that the Hindu people in India would recognise that, you know, worldwide it just doesn't work when you try this ethnic nationalism stuff. It hasn't worked anywhere, has it? Exactly. It has failed everywhere it has been tried. But the problem is the opium of identity politics is so strong here and the vast majority of Hindus were always fed on this false victimhood and persecution complex that the secular Congress party, the Indian National Congress, who had been in power for most of our history, at least in the history of independent India, the majority of Hindus feel that the secularist Congress party favored the Muslims. And the Muslims are only 14% of the population. And yet, they are being painted as this huge demon. And the term Hindu khatre mein hai, that literally translates to Hindus are in danger, has been constantly fed to them. So this victimhood and persecution complex is very strong. And as someone on Twitter said quite rightly, that if you tell Hindutva supporter to burn his house, and that is the way the Muslim's house next door will burn, then he will burn his own house just so that his Muslim neighbor dies. Mm. That's how ridiculous these people are. So even when the statistics and numbers are clearly showing that our economy is tanking and the numbers are extremely bad compared to the UPA2 government that was there in power before Hindutva came to power, even then most Hindus are in denial. And Modi has this charisma, you know, and he just appeals to their confirmation bias. And it's an interesting thing you said over there. Yes, you don't have to be a racist to be a conservative. But the Hindutva, the far-right Hindutva movement is very different from, let's say, the Tories of the UK or Australian conservatives. These people really don't have any skills. They don't have an economic policy. They are just grasping at straws. The only thing they are good at is peddling yoga and telling the people that cow urine is... They literally believe this, that cow urine is the medicine to all that is ailing humanity and things like that. Zubin, Martin, it's been a pleasure talking to you, even though the subject is not a happy one. And I don't know about you, but I don't predict much happiness in the future in that area. But thank you very much for joining us. Thanks a lot, Amanda. If India is a disaster, maybe COVID-19 is a disaster without precedent then maybe not. We love to talk about a crisis. The media loves a crisis. We buy the papers, we click on the internet because there's a crisis. It's a natural human reaction. If you hear a rustle in the bushes and you're in the jungle, you naturally stop and have a look in case there's a tiger behind the bush. So we are biologically attuned to watch out for bad news. But nonetheless, things have changed in how we talk about things that can be difficult and what is really facing us. 
So is COVID-19 a crisis without precedent? Or are we just talking about it differently? Rejoining us on CounterPoint to discuss this issue is Frank Ferradi, a sociologist and commentator, and his book, What's Happened to the University, a sociological exploration of its infantilisation, is published by Rutledge. Frank Ferradi, welcome back to CounterPoint. Hi, nice to talk to you. Well, we say this is a crisis beyond all crisis, but that's probably only true for the younger people in the community. Grandparents, and if there are any around great-grandparents, might remember terrible things that happened earlier in the 20th century. What can you tell us about that and how they handled that? When we look back upon human history, there are many crises of great magnitude. Some are totally overwhelming, such as when you read the Bible and you hear about Noah's flood. These are what we call existential crises because they call into question the very existence of the human species and of the planet. But a crisis is never simply defined by its physical dimension, the scale of physical laws. It's also defined by our reaction to it. And I think that's what's very, very interesting, is that in many respects we now have a crisis that is, first of all, from the beginning, totally global. It's something that is very intimate in the sense that we hear about it 24 hours a day. We see it, we touch it, we can almost smell it through the media and the social media. And the way that governments have reacted to it is so powerful and so swift and so overwhelming that in that sense, it's quite unprecedented. It takes something like the Second World War. Governments, some governments at least, sleepwalked into it. Others were reluctant to accept its reality. Most people only heard about it by the time the tanks were rolling through the borders of Poland. And the way that people reacted to it was very, very different. And although the impact of the Second World War was phenomenally important, nevertheless, in terms of the reaction to it and the way it was perceived, it was not on the same scale as we are reacting to the pandemic at the moment. No. Well, you mentioned the 1918 flu ep- epidemic as being the most destructive global epidemic of modern times, leading to about 40 million deaths. And I was stunned to read in your article that Woodrow Wilson, he was then US president, very little pressure to respond to it. And one historian says he never issued a statement of any kind on the outbreak. He never said a word publicly. Now, it's just incomprehensible compared to what we expect today. Well, I think you have to remember that we have a different orientation towards public health. We are much more concerned with a day-to-day existence, and you could even call it that we're obsessed with our health to the point at which we're always fearing that something is going to go wrong. We've been expecting a pandemic for some time. It's almost as if we've been inviting it. If you look over the last 20 years, every time you have a flu outbreak, it's immediately interpreted as something far worse than that. I remember many of the public health officials who are predicting large numbers of deaths now, were doing the same thing when the mad cow disease broke out. They were saying that at least a quarter of a million people were going to die or, or could die in Britain. In the end, you know, we're talking about hundreds of deaths that occurred. So we have a, a scale of reaction to health-related issues that other people in other societies in history would simply not recognise. I think one of the most interesting points you raised is the quite clear shift from in the past focusing on resilience to what we now focus on, which is vulnerability. What led you to focus on that aspect and what did you find? I became really interested in this back at the early part of the century after the terrorist attack in New York, 9-11, when I was asked by NATO and some other organizations, along with other sociologists, psychologists, to try to understand how people would react if a similar incident occurred in London or in Paris or in Brussels. What would happen? Yes. When we looked at it, I haven't even taken the concept of resilience very seriously because it wasn't something that people talked about very much. And the concept is a relatively new one, as was vulnerability. In fact, in the English language, We never talked about people as being vulnerable until about the 1980s. 
And we certainly hardly ever used it in the 1990s. It kind of exploded into our imagination around the turn of the 21st century. And I began to look at it and began to realize that what has happened was a dramatic change in the way that we look at a human person. We, for example, regard human beings as being less able to deal with the unknown. We find it very difficult to imagine that human beings should be expected to deal with risk, with pain and distress. We have this assumption that the only way that you and I can deal with difficult circumstances is if somebody holds our hands, we have some professionals intervening in our lives. And therefore what we've done is we've kind of redefined humans so that they are principally vulnerable. And resilience is something that they might gain, but only through some kind of medical intervention. And if we have that kind of attitude towards ourselves, if we think that we cannot adapt to difficult trials and challenges, then it seems to me that the way we regard our capacity to deal with a pandemic is very different than it would have been in previous generations. We're fundamentally less confident about dealing with this, and we expect the situation to be far worse. One of the most interesting things that I've found in my research is that almost every problem, every global problem that hits us is almost immediately seen, not as a medical problem or a technical problem, but a problem that threatens our lives, an existential problem that could mean the end of the world. And I think that that is something that we talk about in relation to climate change, in relation to global terrorism, in relation to pandemics, everything is immediately ratcheted up into an existential issue. You're on RN. This is Counterpoint. I'm Amanda Vanstone. I'm talking with Frank Ferrodi, sociologist and commentator, and we're talking about how we think about crises, how we've gone from being people who focused on resilience and courage and the need to be a good citizen into people who focus on our own vulnerability, and it's a bad thing. You focused on the different way children are brought up and that these days we put a lot of value on the psychological aspect of self-esteem and of emotional literacy, you know, understanding how you feel about things. Whereas in the past, kids were brought up with a sense of a moral obligation, that is, to have the virtue of wisdom, of courage, of moderation and justice, and courage in particular being to do good things when other people are in need, not to be focusing on self, whereas, you know, focusing on your self-esteem is focusing on yourself. So how has this happened to us? I think over the years, particularly in the Anglo-American world, we've become estranged from a language of a morality that can be used to socialise young people. So when I was a child, my parents would have a very clear ability to socialize me into values that told me what was right and what was wrong, what was really good and what was really bad. And things like courage or prudence, responsibility, were absolutely clearly spelled out to me in no uncertain terms. And I think that kind of form of socialization has given way over the last four or five decades, particularly since the 1970s, 80s to one, where we rely essentially on psychological techniques, where basically, instead of using the virtues of the past, we believe that the way we bring kids up is basically by validating them. You know, most people involved in the domain of socialization tell you to validate your child, to make them feel good about themselves, that they have to have high levels of self-esteem, that they need to be comfortable with themselves. And, And the consequence of that is that as we adopt a psychological form of socialization, young children necessarily feel themselves to be a little bit more fragile. It's inevitable, you know, when you're 9 or 10 or 11 or 12, you already understand words like depression being stressed out. When you begin to look into yourself all the time and see what's within you as being far more important than external reality, that as you kind of make your way into high school and university, you become, to some extent, continually in need of validation. And if you don't get validated, if you feel that somehow circumstances 
have left you unvalidated, then you find it a little bit more difficult to handle uncertainty in particular. I mean, not every children is like that. Not every parent relies entirely on psychological validation, but the trend is palpable and it is really very, very important. So by the time you get to university, a lot of young people perceive themselves as having serious mental health issues. And if you look at the patterns of the last 25 years, you'll find that every single year mental health problems increase and increase and increase and increase. And every year you find that people define themselves as more and more fragile in ways that would have been unthinkable even in my parents' generation, never mind my grandparents' generation. Mm. I know we have to be careful with stats, but perhaps as a concluding point to the whole issue that you're raising, and that is the change in our belief in ourselves and the focus on the bad things, is some research you did into the use of the word extinction in The Guardian. And in 1988, apparently it appeared 93 times in the pages. In 2007, that had gone up to 207, so that's just more than doubled. But last year, it was 1,391 times. Now, okay, Extinction Rebellion is around, but it does indicate, doesn't it, that the media are wanting to talk about bad news all the time. It does, and it basically suggests that we have this view of our place in the world, which is one that's very, very insecure, where we're finding it very difficult to deal with uncertainty and imagine that the future will be a better version of the present. We always think that things are going to get far, far worse. We kind of project our worst imagination into the years ahead. And I think as a result of that, the word extinction and the ideas that are bound up with extinction have become to a considerable extent normalized. And this is something that kids learn about in schools. They hear about it on the media. And this is very important because if we actually believe that extinction has become a very real possibility, then the way we regard ourselves and our capacity to take control of our destiny becomes severely diminished. It becomes severely compromised. And I'm really concerned when I talk to young kids I talk to young women, 20, 21, 22, 23, and they say, look, Frank, why should I even think about having children in the future? What's the point of having kids if the world that we're moving into is either going to be far worse than that, or it might even become extinct? And when young people think along these lines and actually imagine that things are going to be so bad that we should, as a human species, give up on reproducing ourselves, then you know that these ideas are not just simply circulating in a few elite newspapers, they kind of percolated down into the imagination of everyday life. Mm. Frank Ferrady, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Thanks very much. the soapbox. Well, hopefully, hopefully we can take something good out of this COVID-19 crisis. Maybe we will relearn how good it can be to go a little slower. Yes, I'm keen to get back to regular coffee groups, going out with friends for a meal, whether pizza or something a bit more upmarket. But I am learning about quiet time, about the things that I run around to do or get that just aren't necessary. Surely that's a good thing. And when we get back to mixing with each other face to face again, maybe, just maybe, we will appreciate what we've got. Western civilization has brought millions of people out of poverty, out of hunger, and saved millions of lives. And yet still, Many academics regard it as something to be hated. Why? When you're listening to radio or watching the television, perhaps reading the paper, do you get the idea that some people think 
mankind is a bad thing, that we are responsible for all the evils, that civilization, as you and I might call it, hasn't been such a good thing, really, and that it's got it all wrong. Well, you might consider the proposition put by Grayson Quay, who we're about to talk to, and that is that once you start questioning the value of civilization, it's the moment civilization is in real trouble. But it's an interesting point. Why do academics hate civilization? That's what we're going to talk about. And we're talking to Grayson Quay, who's a freelance writer in the United States. Grayson Quay, welcome back to Counterpoint. Thank you so much for having me again, Amanda. It's a pleasure. Now, what is it with these academics? Why are they so hot on civilization? So I would trace it to the beginnings of postmodernism, which has its roots in kind of the post-World War II era, mostly in France. And it started off as a way of analyzing how language is so foundational to the way we think, even deeper than we might realize, and how yes. language organizes the power structures that affect us from day to day. Where I think they've taken an extra step, a step too far, is some of the people on the extreme wing of the postmodernist camp now say that, well, if language always leads to power structures, which always leads to oppression, then maybe language itself, without which you can't have civilization, maybe isn't so desirable. No, there's something wrong if people are being paid in universities to write that. Yeah, right. They're writing papers in which they say language is a bad idea, sort of sawing off the branch you're sitting on. Honestly, honestly. It's no wonder those academics got away with it. Do you remember a couple of years ago in the United States, they wrote rubbish papers with ridiculous titles and got quite a lot of them published in you know, really good, allegedly, publications. Anyway, the bottom line here is that these people about whom you're talking think that civilization's sins outweigh its achievements. And that's something we all have to face up to, isn't it? That civilization's a good thing. We've achieved tremendous things. But we can't turn a blind eye to where we've messed up. Yes, this is where I think, on one hand, they have quite a convincing argument. You can point to slavery, you can point to the Holocaust, you can point to any number of atrocities that have been committed by various human societies throughout the history of civilization. And when you add them all up together, it's a pretty convincing case. So in my article, I talked about a book by Kurt Vonnegut that came out in 1986 called Galapagos. If you haven't read Vonnegut, he's a delightful writer normally. But in this story, he reflects for a long time on all these different horrible ways in which people treat each other and all the destruction that's been made possible by human intelligence. And in the end, he says, I think we'd be better off without it. He imagines this future a million years from now where humans have evolved into these sort of fur seal-like creatures that no longer have language, no longer have thumbs. Kind of the worst thing anyone can do to anyone else is sort of bat them with their flipper. That's a bit of an unusual theme for a book, isn't it? It is. It's pretty bleak, but that's Kurt Vonnegut. He's very good at making you see the absurdities of human nature, although I will say in other books I've read by him, he's not quite so anti-human about the whole thing. He's always pessimistic, but never to this degree in other books I've read. Well, you mentioned someone you describe as a queer theorist, Lee Edelman, who apparently argues that the future-orientated nature of civilization, that is, you want to keep going and therefore you need babies, is inherently oppressive to anyone who isn't straight. Now, I nearly laughed when I read that, but I didn't laugh because I thought, I can't believe this. This person is earning money writing this stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, he wrote this book called No Future in which, yeah, he basically says that every ideology, you know, whether it's Christian fundamentalism or Marxism, is future-oriented, depends on having children. And so as a result, all of those ideologies will be suspicious of anyone who's not contributing to that future by producing children. You know, my counter-argument would be perhaps that many of the blessings of civilization, including kind of surplus food that not everyone's living in through subsistence agriculture, actually frees people up from having to produce a large number of children and makes it easier to be something other than straight. But that's not his argument. His argument is indeed that the sort of crimes of civilization against queer people almost invalidate the entire project of civilization. 
You're on RN, this is Counterpoint. I'm talking with Grayson Quay and we're talking about civilization. why academics hate it. Why does everyone get this great big list of bad things that have happened and say, well, let's get rid of it. They're crazy. Why don't some people accept that the world as it is without civilization, without language, was harsh and for so many people extraordinarily brutal in fact, still is today, but that civilization, as you and I think of it, has made fantastic achievements, not just in the artistic sphere, but in the real world that affects people. That is, dragging millions out of poverty, dragging millions out of a lack of any education whatsoever and giving them the pleasures that come from having the understanding that education brings, bringing down mortality rates, especially of children, bringing down starvation rates, just fantastic what's been achieved. What do these people say about those achievements? I get they make a list of the bad things, but what do they say about the achievements? Yeah, I think that, and this is something I tried to put myself in their shoes as I was writing, and here's what I could come up with. So human civilization has existed for less than 10,000 years, and before that, humanity existed for hundreds of thousands of years. And during that time period, as you said, Infant mortality was incredibly high. I think the estimate's around 50%. Women died in childbirth at an astounding rate. Men died through warfare and hunting accidents at an astounding rate as well. There was nothing in the way of sanitation or medicine. As you said, life was incredibly brutal and difficult. But at the same time, with that level of civilizational development, you also couldn't have something as well-oiled and well-organized as the transatlantic slave trade or the Holocaust. And I think what happens is they've fallen into this false way of thinking where you have to weigh the one against the other. And the mere act of doing that feels almost disrespectful to the victims. I don't get Uh, that. So I think if you ask, well, let's weigh the Sydney Opera House against the destruction of the Australian Aboriginals, it seems almost an inappropriate question to ask. But I think that there you're asking the wrong question. It's not a matter of adding things up in one column or another. It's not a matter of trying to balance a ledger book. No. Um, I think ultimately civilization is an act of faith in some ways. I understand what you're saying. It isn't a list of good things on one side and bad things on the other and you know, we'll sort of rule a line at the bottom and add it up. There is an act of faith, but just as the people who think civilization is good and has done good things and is worth continuing with acknowledge that there's been some bad things, I think this other lot need to acknowledge some of the good things. I don't think that's unreasonable to expect that of them. No, certainly not. I think it is definitely a huge oversight of incredibly large proportions when they fail to recognize the blessings of civilization of which they themselves are beneficiaries. Yeah. But I think even in the darkest times, when you are tempted to think that maybe this whole endeavor isn't worth it, I think that's where it kicks in that civilization is indeed an act of faith. The British writer G.K. Chesterton had a concept that he called the flag of the world, which was the idea that you owe a sort of patriotism to just existence in general, that you won't always be able to justify rationally, but it's still necessary. I think that's perfectly fair and a sensible proposition. I mean, what's the alternative? Sometimes I'm dumbfounded at the way some people think. That might mean that I'm dumb. I don't know. Grayson Quay, thank you for joining us again. Thank you so much, Amanda. That was great. Hate is an emotion, and we need to learn to channel our emotions to get much better outcomes. Close your eyes and feel this hit your chest. Emotions. Oh, what do we mean when we say you've let your emotions get the better of you? It's sort of a negative thing to say to someone, whereas really it might not be a bad thing to let your emotions have some say. In fact, they have quite a bit of say. How can we learn to manage them? Now, 
a person who helps me train Ernie says it's called impulse control. I don't know whether we can develop some of that, but if we could use emotions more effectively, we could do lots of things, save the world, improve our jobs, whatever. Joining me now to discuss just that issue, learning to manage our emotions, is Ari Wallach. He's the founder of Long Path, which is an organisation focused on cultivating future conscious thinking and action in order to ensure human flourishing on a thriving planet, Earth, for centuries to come. Ari Wallach, welcome to CounterPoint. Thanks for having me. Ari, why do you think people do say, oh, you've let your emotions get the better of you, as if it's a bad thing? You know, it's interesting. Just to take this into historical really fast, this really goes back to the Enlightenment. At the end of the day, you know, I'm going to take this back two, three hundred years, is that we wanted to kind of move forward as a society, in Western society. And what we found was this idea of, you know, the emotions would grab a hold of us and they weren't rational and they weren't logical. And that's what the Enlightenment and that's what it was all about. And so for us to be kind of scientific and modern and technical, we had to drive emotions away. And so we became kind of this cold and calculating species, if you will, and emotions that ended up getting such a bad rap that here we are a couple of hundred years later and people think, you know, to be quote unquote emotional is a bad thing. But what the reality is, is the emotions are still there, right? We're still feeling them. The only emotion we end up really feeling is the emotion of guilt when we're emotional, which gets in the way of actually (laughs) having the emotions in the first place. Yeah. Ari, we interviewed a couple of years ago, a guy called Hate. And he had a theory that emotions are actually very prevalent in our decision-making. And the metaphor, I suppose, or analogy he used to describe it was that your brain is like an elephant with a monkey on top. And the elephant is emotion, so that we apparently rush to make a conclusion that fits in with our emotions and what we've you know, previously thought our political thinking And then when we get into trouble, we say to the monkey, hey, hold on, figure out a way to get me out of that. That in reality, we make a lot of decisions in a very emotional way. But that's not consistent, is it, with what you think? Yeah, I mean, look, I love height. I was actually just with him not that long ago. We were talking about this elephant versus the rider. And so what we end up doing, we think the rider is making the decision and then all these emotions bubble up after the writer has made the decision, and then we try to use the writer, this monkey, to kind of tackle it. The reality is, before we've made almost any decision, be it micro or macro, the elephant has already decided, right? The decision has been made, and then we try to kind of rationalize it. And so what we end up doing is getting into this false battle between kind of the prefrontal cortex, a part of our brain that's executive functioning and, you know, the very serious, and the emotional side. And if we could learn... To kind of work with emotions, we'd be able to make decisions in a much more cohesive way in terms of how we are in the world. And the reality is, before we can even get to the point where we're, quote unquote, working with our emotions, what we want people to do is recognize that we actually have emotions, that they're actually not bad, that they've been with us for not just hundreds, but thousands of years. And they were used in many ways by our great ancestors to help us make decisions both individually and collectively, be it in the tribe, the clan, or the community as a group, and that so many of the mistakes that we make around decisions, it could be about how we discipline our children, or let's say, I don't know, policies around thinking long-term at a political level within a nation state. If we understood that emotions are always going to be with us, we can make decisions that were dare I say, more pragmatic that are actually going to do in the long run better things instead of trying to fight the emotionality that is part of Homo sapiens and part of our species. Mm. So really what we need to do is figure out how to make sure the elephant speaks monkey and the monkey speaks elephant and they talk to each other before the decision is made. Well, look, here's the funny thing. They're already talking to each other. We just don't acknowledge it, right? That conversation is happening always. Whenever we kind of look back, I'll use a negative for a second. When we look back at kind of arguments that we have with our partners or colleagues or children or anyone, we're always kind of surprised where the argument went, right? We're like, wow, how did it go down that rabbit hole? How did it get so negative? How did it go in that direction? 
The reality is the decisions about where that conversation was going to go were already bubbling up internally at an emotional level before we even started getting logical about it. And the deeper reality is most of those emotions are not just coming up in the moment, but they're usually connected to something that happened to us in the past. And by that thing that happened in the past, that was probably even an emotional thing there. So what we end up doing is by kind of fighting with emotions instead of recognizing that they are there, they are something to be kind of cultivated and worked with, we end up getting into these false battles, not only between the elephant and the monkey and the rider, but between each other. And we kind of go in this downward spiral, which is just totally unnecessary. Yeah. Now, you might have numbers of categories of emotions, but there's one category that you think is particularly important. And if we could manage to harness them better, to work more effectively with them, it would be good. And that's the self-transcendent emotions. Things like empathy, gratitude, and wonderment. Yeah, look, the most important thing we can do at this point in human history, and I know this sounds kind of new agey, but the fact is, when we step back, we're in a big arc right now. And, you know, hopefully we have not just hundreds, but thousands and tens of thousands of years ahead of us, right? If we are going to be able to make the smart decisions that are not just short-term reactionary, and by short-term reactionary, I mean the kind of decisions that we were making probably, you know, 15, 20,000 years ago. Do I go down this path or do I go down that path, right? And if I do, how do I make sure I don't get eaten by something with very large teeth? The reality is we're making decisions like that right now. Emotions allowed us to do that, allow us to transcend beyond ourselves. is to think about decisions that transcend are actually our own life. And it's extremely difficult to do that, right? It sounds counterintuitive that the biggest decisions require us to think beyond just our own self and our own life. But when we do that, we're able to do amazing things. And you see that over history. You know, we call this cathedral thinking, right? Even up until two, three hundred years ago, be it in the UK or around the world, there'd be these massive religious-based buildings that were built and designed by architects that knew that they wouldn't even be fully constructed until after their own passing. But yet they were able to do that. They were able to think beyond themselves and have this sense of what we call transgenerational empathy. So not only just the connection outside of themselves in their own time, but to those who are to come mm. when we do these amazing things. You're on RN. This is Counterpoint. I'm Amanda Vanstone. I'm talking with Ari Wallach, the founder of Long Path, an organisation focused on cultivating future conscious thinking. And what we're talking about is emotions. Can we use them more effectively to save the planet, to save ourselves? Ari, you're talking about intergenerational empathy. Why is that hard for some people to think of? I mean, I look at my great nieces and think, I want the world to be a good place for you to grow up in. What kind of person can't manage that? Well, it, about 98% of us can't manage that. And the reason why, you know, is we go to this idea of mortality salience, which was put together by the psychologist in the 70s, Ernest Becker. He wrote this amazing book that he won the Pulitzer for called The Denial of Death. You know what the book is about based on the title, right? Yeah. And so for us to have transgenerational empathy and thinking and action, it's extremely difficult because to do that means we actually have to tackle probably the most difficult emotion facing any human, which is the idea and the emotion connected around their own sense of self and ego and their own mortality. So it's extremely difficult in a Western society that cultivates this idea that it's all about staying young and youth and aging is this terrible thing and, and death is terrible. And, you know, we see that in advertising, we see that in culture, we see that in everything, in media. For you to think about your nieces and think about we want a great world for them and generations to come, the elephant has to acknowledge that it will cease to exist at one point in time. And so much of our biology is pointed towards us trying to do everything we can to limit the idea and the actuality of our own personal demise. It's not an easy thing to cultivate, right? We're actually asking individuals to transcend potentially hundreds of thousands of years of hard wiring, which is to think about a reality in a world where they no longer exist within it. Really tough stuff. Mm, although perhaps it's quite a common thing crossing people's minds today, 
it often crosses my mind, or used to when I was on a plane, I used to travel a lot in a previous job, you know, if there was going to be a crash and we all knew there was going to be a crash and some people could be saved, you know, the planes sort of crash landed and you want to get people out before it blows up. No one knows what happens when you're actually in that situation. But I like to think that I'd have the fortitude, and it would take some strength, I understand that, to let kids, younger people go first who haven't had a chance. Don't you think you'd have the fortitude to do that? So it's interesting. Yes, in an acute emergency type situation. But if you think about where we find ourselves, and what I mean by that is you're on the plane, the wings are on fire, it's crazy. Yes, 100%. Cortisol, you know, adrenaline kicks in. Where this gets extremely difficult and tricky is when it's a slow, rolling, moving emergency, right? And yeah. so the obvious thing, and I, I don't have to tell you anything more about this because you guys have been doing this for a long time, is climate change, right? We know, if you believe in science, and, you, and we do yeah. over here at Long Path, that we are moving into a moment in time where these are the decisions that have to be made. But because it's not a plane on fire, because we don't see a day in and day out, that type of thinking doesn't kick in. Ah, and this so is we, the temporal discounting. You know, like I'm here now and I'm going to give a discount to something because I can get it now. Yes, Walter Michel, who was a famous psychologist at Columbia University here in New York, did this experiment where he you know, put a bunch of very young children into a room and said, listen, right now there's one marshmallow in front of you. I'll come back in 10 minutes. If that one marshmallow is still here, you'll get two marshmallows. Well, guess what? 80% of the kids ate that first marshmallow. <laughs> now, the 20% who didn't and waited to get the second marshmallow, they tracked those kids over many, many years. And guess what? Of course, they had better results. They did better at work. They got better grades. A whole bunch of great things happened. Now, when you look into the research, some of those kids came from better off home situations than others. So it was a skewed study. But the fact of the matter is, we much rather have something right now than more of something in the future. And again, this goes back to evolutionary biology. If you and I, you know, let's go back 25,000 years ago, we're walking yeah. in a valley and we see a fruit tree and there's all this ripe fruit on there. I say, well, look, we can stop and eat some right now, but you know, on the other side of that mountain, just right in front of us, there may be multiple trees with different types of fruits. What are we going to do? Guess what? We're going to eat what's in front of us right now. And so we often think about the future as less than right now at an individual and at a species level. And by the way, I'm not saying that this is a terrible thing. This got us to the point where we now have modern humanity doing some really interesting things with technology. At the same time, we have to find ways of cultivating, ways of thinking about the future and existing where we're not discounting the future. We just can't because if we continuously do that, if we continuously operate as if though we have infinite resources on a finite planet we're going to find ourselves in a very difficult situation as a species. Ari Wallach, it has been a real pleasure talking to you. I'm sure that we are going to talk again. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. That's the program for this week. I hope you enjoyed it and I hope you join us again next week. After all, in these times, radio is a good thing to be listening to. Until next week, this is Amanda Vanstone saying ciao, ciao. To help me describe the way you should be. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.